You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. have a little discussion about the reading which raised the, you have to pay attention now this is going to be on the test um, yeah. and if you don't pass the test you won't be allowed to leave <laughs> so um, I, I want to ask I wanted to ask uh, start by asking Scott uh, some of this um, the zombie stuff what's what's the uh, I don't want you to I don't want to do a spoiler but what's the the uh, machinery you're working with in this? You know, there's a machinery that goes. I, well, there's machinery that goes with vampires, and there's machinery that goes with werewolves. What's the zombie machinery that you're working with, and what changes do you make in it? Well, I definitely created a bit of my own zombie mythology because <coughs> in most your your standard archetypal zombie right, is, what is, is, that? is your Romero zombie. Well, I mean, you can go back to the voodoo zombie and, and the white zombie where you're actually a slave and you're not an, a reanimated corpse. But most people, when they think of zombies, they think of uh, a mindless, shambling, flesh-obsessed monster that, that does, it's just operating completely from the id. It's just operating on impulse and it just wants food. I flipped that around. I made my zombies sentient obviously, because he has all of his memories. He's able to acquire more memories. I, I don't really explain how the fact that he can talk without being able to breathe uh, or some of, the, <laughs> some of the other physiological... I never even thought of that. Some of the other yeah, you shouldn't have brought it up. I, I, sort of, <laughs> I sort of just avoid that. And, and, I, and usually when, they, when you're dealing with zombies, it's a virus or it's a comet that went across or some kind of nuclear fallout from something or other. But in mine, I don't really think that's a, a major issue. And so I, I, I tend to say that people don't really know who exactly why they're coming back. Not even the weekly world know, news knows why zombies <laughs> have come back. They pretty much chalk it up to a, a, a latent gene that reactivates a dormant gene that reactivates for a very small percentage of the population, which actually there are stories in the weekly world news that are real. <laughs> if, you, if you pick them close enough, like, 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 the, like the wolf people who live in Mexico that have a it's, a, it's a dormant gene that reactivates in them, and so they have hair all over their face and all over their bodies. So that's kind of what I did with the zombies there. Um, so that's, like I said, I, I played with the, the mythology of, of zombies significantly in mind, which a lot of your zomb hardcore zombie enthusiasts don't like, but that's okay. You can't, <laughs> you can't please everybody, but but it was a lot of fun to sort of play with that that stereotype. Cool. And and um, just to set the stage, also Jeff, what's the without a spoiler or anything? I don't know the uh, the sort of. Uh, the the setting of ambergris and mm -hmm. like what's going on in like a hundred <laughs> words <laughs> like a pitch you're pitching it to me I'm I'm Steven Spielberg what's oh the dear <laughs> well uh, first of all most of it's unfilmable so I probably wouldn't be pitching it to you but um, uh, basically uh, I think ambergris is kind of an attempt to reconcile all the places that I visited as a kid unlike like Stephen King who has a lot of stuff set in Maine for example you know I grew up in the Fiji Islands and had uh, also 
uh, a lot of we, we traveled around the world getting back to the U.S. and and so uh, that's that's what I think Ambergris actually is. It's combinations of all kinds of like tropical and European cities put together, and um, it kind of changes with uh, current events. I mean, literally, it's it's my way of kind of expressing uh, not an opinion, but kind of expressing what's happening out in the world. So, like Finch, for example, there's extraordinary rendition. There's all kinds of uh, illegal interrogations, suicide bombers, and things like that mixed in with the noir. And uh, so it's kind of a combination of like uh, Paris during the Nazi occupation and Baghdad during our occupation. Right. You so, you mentioned the occupation. Who are yeah. the occupants? The occupiers, according to Publishers Weekly, are intelligent fungus, <laughs> um, uh, which I object to most strenuously. <laughs> I think you when misread I saw that, that, I laughed. Uh, I what? think you misread that. that re- PW, they were talking about their reviewers. Oh. <laughs> What is true? They have slashed the rates for their reviewers. Um, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> you're not recording that, are you? Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, no, don't please don't tweet that. Um, I have boundless respect for them. Um, the, um, no, actually, what they are is they're they're kind of uh, they're actually a, kind of an alien species, and uh, they just happen. They're not really mushrooms. It's, it's that they use uh, fungus as kind of an alien technology. For example. Uh, they keep they keep people in fear because they have these little nano cameras, but they take the the form of spores. So they're basically little spore cameras. The the the, the irony of that is that they receive so much information that they're like kind of backlog, like five or six years. So they receive all this information from these millions of spores about people all over the city. But but the uh, the hope of every citizen is that, that they don't get to their information quickly enough if they've done something wrong. And I actually thought that was a great parallel to the way that our own um, our own security services were, were bugging us and, and gathering all this information. And then you learn that they're still processing stuff from like two years before. So, uh, so there's a lot of parallels there. Um, but all through fungal technology, um, but they're not intelligent fungi. They're um, they're they're something else entirely. And to tell to say too much would would give it away. But but I would say that they probably are subconsciously influenced by Lovecraft. So, oh Lovecraft. <laughs> well, does anybody here have uh, questions or comments before we? Yeah. Uh oh. Well, before we tell you more, why do you want to know? Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do with it? It's copyrighted, you know. No matter what Cory Doctorow says. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping I can, I can um, link microtechnology to Spintronics and mm. Well, well, <laughs> I don't think this is going to help you, but I have to say that the reason I was drawn to fungal technologies is learning things like for certain types of mushrooms, you can put iron filings in the ground, bury basically bury it in the ground around them, and they will soak that up. And over time, that mushroom will become partially made of iron filings. And there's all kinds of weird details about mushrooms. The fact that they've really recently been reclassified as closer to animal than plant that are really kind of freaky if you think about it. And then also the fact that they actually form this kind of invisible world around us that we don't see that's very important to the whole process of life on this planet. I, I was just wondering how the spores, which haven't connected to the yeah. social network, connect yeah. Yeah. That, That's a state secret. <laughs> 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 it ain't hard science fiction. <laughs> yeah, it's Miyazaki science fiction, yeah. <laughs> Nausicaa, yeah. <laughs> Any other um, <laughs> comments on that? No, I'm interested. I'm a hard science fiction writer myself. 
It's hard to write and it's hard to read. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, okay, so I'll change it to a question for Scott. Mm. Um, so Scott, I found your your writing very funny. Uh, my question is, other than the obvious Disney connection, what led you to discover that you liked writing more in a more humorous mm. vein, or that it was something that you were good at and might be? Well, definitely Disney had nothing to do with it. I can tell you that. Um, uh, that's another story entirely. The, there is a very easy answer for this, and that's uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Mm. Don't I, you pronounce that Palahniuk? Is Palahniuk right? Yeah, I'm sure you I just call him Chuck P. I'm, pre yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Palahniuk. I, 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 I did a lot of research on this, um, so hopefully I'm getting this right. I'm going with you. <laughs> Palahniuk? Palahniuk, not yeah. Palahniuk. He's the guy I really know. He works oh, for radio. I'll go with, yeah. I'll go with Rick. Yeah. Rick for, for $100. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> From, for about a dozen years, I'd written straight supernatural horror inspired by Stephen King, Dean Koontz, Peter Straub, Robert McCammon, F. Paul Wilson, blah, blah, blah. And around 2002, I was realizing I, I wasn't enjoying what I was writing. I'd, I was rewriting my second and my third books and just not having any fun with it. And writing had become laborious and tedious and I wasn't enjoying it and I thought well why am I going to continue to do this so I stopped writing for a little while and I happened to pick up Lullaby by Chuck Palahniuk on my on a vacation I took and, and I'd written some short stories that were darkly comedic but never thought of expanding them to a novel length and my short story A Zombie's Lament which is what this book is based on I'd written a year before reading Lullaby and when I read Lullaby I just I loved it I've What's never read anything. It's it's a dark comedy with a horror supernatural element to it. it it's the, the concept is there's a culling song, an African culling song that when you say it to somebody, it's actually more like a poem, it kills them. Oh. Mm -hmm. And so you don't find that out right away. So I just spoiled that for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but you find it out soon enough. Yeah. But it just it 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 was it was something I had never read before. And I thought, well, he manages to pull this off, and I've written some short stories like this, so I, I wonder if I can too. And so that was the inspiration for me to, to write Breathers. And once I started writing it, I realized I, I much prefer writing in this voice. And I wouldn't say it's because I want to make other people laugh, but I think I really would prefer to make other people laugh than to try to creep them out. And making myself laugh is, is a lot of fun. So I was telling somebody before, Dave, I was speaking to, I always tell people if, if what you're writing doesn't resonate with you on some level, it either scares you or, or makes you laugh or makes you cry or, or sure. resonates on some level, it's not going to resonate with anyone else. And this is the kind of stuff I would like to read, and I just hopefully can connect with the people who enjoy the same type of humor. Thank you. Sure. Did you have a, a hinge moment like that? Seriously. Or a, a writer that sort of changed how you went at it? Um, I think uh, the three writers that changed the way I went at it were uh, Angela Carter, Edward Whittemore, and uh, Vladimir Nabokov. Um, uh, because they all seem to appreciate the absurdity of the world, and no matter what I write, that's kind of something that comes through. I mean, like, even in Finch, it's not a humorous book by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and that's okay because noir isn't supposed to be that way. The satisfaction comes from something else. 
Uh, but there are humorous moments if you look for them. I mean, the gray caps who rule the city, these, 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 this kind of alien species, um, don't understand humans at all. So they provide guns to like the police force, but there's, they're guns that actually weep and guns that actually make strange sounds and seep a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, and they think they're providing something that's useful to them, but it horrifies the policemen. Um, to help them in their cases, they have these things called memory bulbs where they sprinkle this powder on a corpse that's been murdered, and, and this memory bulb comes up, and the detective has to eat it, but he has to eat it whole. And, uh, and then he gets the memories of the person who, uh, who, who's dead, and it helps him solve the case. How far back? Um, well, that's the thing. That's the thing. It doesn't help at all because it's all stream of consciousness. But they still have to go through this the, with this procedure, and uh, and so there's this dark humor running through this, which I think is is also a dark, uh, horrible, horrible, absurd dark humor that you find in the real world, where cultures don't understand each other, and occupying forces don't understand the people that they're occupying, and um, uh, I think I think there was that, and then there was also the fact that. As I became more comfortable with my writing, humor did creep in because I think humor is something that you can only do when you're comfortable with your writing. And although Finch doesn't have that, Shriek and the other books have a lot of humor in them. And it was something that I had to relax into. And it wasn't until I felt comfortable with storytelling that I was able to be humorous and kind of relax into that. So. I think there's a lot uh, – in Noir has a strain of humor, but it's, it has to be very dry. Right. It can't be uh, – right. um, the kind of like the kind of humor that Scott does. It can't be. No, it can't be broad. It, it, can, it can't be, be spoken. It, it yeah. can't be under. I, I guess you have the kind of humor where the protag- the protagonist doesn't laugh. You know, he doesn't think it's funny. right. He doesn't think it's funny. The yeah. reader may find it funny. And Scott's also doing a satirical level, right. right? Along with everything else. So, and that's something you can't really do in noir. You can't go meta on noir. You, if you're going to commit to noir, you have to at the street level. It has to be convincing, and everything else comes off of that. So. Well, that's true of horror, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, if you're just going to do straight horror, you you can't play with that. was actually trouble I got into on one of my books is I had a, a chapter where it was actually very funny, and it didn't work within the context of the fact that I was telling this horrific story the rest of the way through. Mm-hmm. And so I had to yank it out. Well, I think, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I think the secret of Stephen King is that he puts you in the everyday world. You know, uh, the opposite mm-hmm. of it's not Lovecraft. You know, there's no, no. lagoon soothing with eons of incalculable. No, no, and Seven <laughs> Eleven. No, absolutely, and and, yeah. and that's I think that's really important. I mean, one thing I try and do in these books is I I, I don't have the perspective of kings and princes in that kind of class. It's usually either the, the artists are middle class or it's lower middle class. Finch is actually kind of lower middle class. What bothers me about fantasy sometimes is you don't have the guy going down to the corner 7-Eleven. You have all this kind of exalted stuff that happens that doesn't really have a layer of reality to it because it doesn't really connect with ordinary people's lives. The The problem then is you not, you got to still make it really fascinating for the reader and kind of make the story flow. So Yeah, well, that's... Yeah. I, I just wanted to say what, what you're talking about. I mean, for some reason, when I was reading Finch, mm-hmm. I had also been reading, uh, I get mixed up, Scott Thomas, uh, Jeffrey Thomas, Punk Town. Yes. And uh, I was reading Finch, and I said, this is Punk, uh, this could take place in Punk Town. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you, if you had, had talked to them at all when you were writing the book, or if you had been influenced by them at all, or if it's just that noir atmosphere. But it's, it's that, you're right, it's, it's that, that, I guess, pithy realism. Well, I mean, right. 
Well, I mean, noir is also about kind of a heightened reality in a way. I mean, but 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 there is that that grittiness. Uh, I was actually thinking of something like Doctor Strangelove, where the camera comes in close while you're following the soldiers. And my idea was that using the sentence fragments and everything in Finch was a way of basically having a handheld camera, like right at his shoulder, more or less. Um, I know Jeffrey Ford, and, I mean Jeffrey uh, Thomas, and uh, uh, actually published Punktown. Um, I don't think it's really that much of an influence. Um, on this particular book, I just think that there's a confluence of writers who write in a noir style. I mean, if you if you read a lot of mysteries, there's all kinds of different types of noir too. Um, well, I mean, yeah, but no, but but I, I agree with the darkness because one thing that animates my books is horror. I mean, mixing the fantasy and the horror, which kind of grounds it. So, yes, the stalker. <laughs> You got that with you for <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, State your name for the record. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Carrie. Um, so you mentioned that you were kind of constrained in how you could put the humor in, in yeah. Finch that couldn't be so overt. Um, did you feel any other constraints while writing Finch that had to be tra- like within the trappings of noir that... Or did you feel very free when you were writing that? Well, this will sound kind of weird, but I actually um, reviewed Mysteries and Noir for PW, for Publishers Weekly, for seven years, specifically because I knew eventually I'm going to be writing Finch, and I didn't want it to be a physical reaction. I wanted it to be a chemical reaction. I wanted the Noir element to be so wedded to the fantasy element that you couldn't separate them out. And so by the time I came to read Finch, um, and also because I'd read Mystery since I was a kid, um, I knew the tropes so well that it would, there was second nature to me is the fantasy and the science fiction um, stuff. And so then the, the, the playfulness actually came from like riffing off of that. Not only riffing off of that, but, but at the end, I think kind of um, surprising the reader who may be thinking because of the noir structure that the story is going to go in a certain way and it goes in another. Um, it's a good, really good question, though, because we're seeing more and more of this noir and fantasy mix, and some of them are chemical reactions, and some of them are not. And you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference between someone who is really steeped in this stuff and really knows it, and someone who is more of a dilettante. So, dilettante's a bad thing. <laughs> I don't think it's a. I don't. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think that. That you Nothing can see the separation. <laughs> you can see the separation a little bit more. And and some novels maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Backpedaling really fast, you know, making sure that you know right. don't offend anybody. <laughs> well, what about say that out loud? your voice? Is it uh, the voice of the zombie? Right. Yes. Did that come fairly easily? It did. Uh, again, this is a conversation mm. that that we had. Wait a minute. What's the laughter up there for? <laughs> Uh, there was actually a, a panel at World Fantasy about when, when the, the author becomes confused with his characters. Mm. Not the author himself, it's the reader confuses the author with his characters or her characters. And one of the quotes that they brought up, and I think they were quoting somebody else's, all of my characters are in me, but I am not one of any mm. one of my characters. And and I would say the same thing with this. I mean, it's it's my voice, but it's not my voice. He says things that I wouldn't necessarily say. I don't talk like this in normal life. Uh, I also tend to think that I probably, the, the book is funnier than I am <laughs> because I can edit it and I can come up with, you know, I, I never have the right thing to say at just the right time. Every now and then I get the zinger in there, but most of the time I'm like, damn it. Why didn't I say that five minutes ago? It's true. It's much better. I had dinner with you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You owe me the $20 again. (laughs) 
Uh, it, uh, but I didn't mean the voice was it your voice. I just meant did um, what well, you know you you create a character, you create a voice, and and did did it was it there at the beginning or or was it there on the third draft? That's mm. sort of my question. No, it was there at the beginning. Definitely, it's always an act. Mm-hmm. It's always you know. Yeah. But it, it was, was the the voice. The voice was definitely there right off the bat. Uh, it didn't really change much. Uh, I did find when I was, and, it, and this is kind of interesting, when I wrote my second novel, it's also first person and I, and I enjoy writing in the first person, he had a little bit more of an attitude, my main character. Mm. Uh, his name is Fabio uh, in the second book, and he's fate. Uh, but he's, he's fake? Fate. 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 Oh. Fate is the main character in, oh. in my next book. And he had a little bit more of an attitude. While I was writing that book, while I was doing edits on breathers for my editor, and I realized that it wasn't working because Andy had more of an attitude. He was being snarkier, and it's because I was channeling Fabio. And so I had to go back and channel Andy <laughs> because Andy had a little bit more of a softer-spoken sort of sarcasm. Even mm. though he had sarcasm in there, it wasn't. He didn't have the mm-hmm. same attitude. So there was definitely a difference in mm-hmm. in those, but. It was right off the bat. I knew exactly what his voice was when I started writing. Yeah, and, and I think that's true. I think you you do channel in your main character sometimes some aspect of yourself. It's not the whole aspect of yourself. Uh, in Finch, I was trying to channel my better self because it's a, it's a person, the main character is a person who is in a compromised position to begin with working for this occupied force. But in every single situation, he is still trying within that constraint to do the best thing. And he many times does things that I would never be brave enough to do. But that is that is how I began to get to the core of the character was like if if I was on my best day every moment and wasn't a chicken shit about certain things, <laughs> maybe I'd be able to do this. And it was actually very satisfying for once to write a character who wasn't morally compromised in some way because I do a lot of unreliable narrators and a lot of people who are kind of amoral. Um, so that was actually very satisfying to do. That's interesting. I was just thinking in, in uh, usually um – one of my rules about fiction is that the the protagonist should be a little dumber than the reader, and that that's used in a lot of fiction where the mm-hmm. the protagonist, even if he's not totally unreliable, he's always a little unreliable. But I do think that in some noir, and I think I think uh, in a lot of Raymond Chandler and mm-hmm. Finch, he's actually a little smarter than a reader, and and maybe as a I, I've only tried that once, but it's a, it's an interesting thing to try to do. Well, I think also that I needed him to be simple in his moral compass. I mean, not simple, but you know what I mean? Because the situation around him is so complicated. If he had been more complicated, then suddenly there's no center to the novel because there's so many political factions and everything else, and the city itself is so complex. So there needed to be that balance, kind of. Oh, do you have your hand up? Oh, you didn't? Okay. Now you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, can you tell something about this uh, uh, how-to book? Right. Uh, it's called Book Life, and it's, uh, the subtitle is Strategies and Survival Tips for the 21st Century Writer. It's basically about sustainable creativity and sustainable careers, and it's built as much out of my own mistakes in my, my life and my creativity and, and my career as it is from the successes. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is there are not many writing books out there that deal with uh, new media and the internet in terms of a writer's life and in terms of strategies that you can pursue both for your writing and your career. Usually you'll see a book that has a section on the internet. Um, but in here you have sections on like traditional topics like how you deal with envy or despair or success, but suffused with the whole idea of the way that the, the whole world has changed and the fact that we're online a lot and that we engage with new media like Facebook. 
And uh, one of the goals of the book is to stop a lot of writers from basically becoming these hamsters on wheels who are always looking for the next food pellet of response on Facebook or Twitter or anything else. A lot of writers think that a strategy is to blog or a strategy is to get on Facebook. And those are not strategies. Those are simply tools that you use. And a lot of writers get used by those tools and get very fragmented and don't make a lot of progress. And so the book is kind of like about balance and like how you can stop and and kind of be in control of the situation a little bit more. So a hamster's a bad thing. A hamster's... (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to get it straight. A hamster is a great thing. Uh, they taste wonderful, uh, grilled. Um, the uh, <laughs> I love hamsters, but <laughs> but uh, but 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 I find from my own life and being out of balance, and uh, and from the writers that I talk to, that this is actually a problem. That that no one really knows how to actually get the most out of new media and the internet. Um, everyone. Yeah wants to use it, but um, but the fact is you don't need to be on 24-7. You don't need to do all this stuff. What you need to know is you need to know what you want out of your writing and what you want out of your career. Yeah, is there a lot of actual writing stuff in there, like uh, plot, timeline, characterization, all that stuff? N- not really. I mean, there's stuff in the private book life section that is more on craft, but it's on a more general level. It's basically a strategy guide. I mean, there's actually a section with resources where I say, these are the best books for these types of topics on craft. And other people have already written them. There's no need for me to rewrite that. And uh, so that's also the way it's useful right. is it says th- th- this is where you can find that stuff if so you want not, it. I know that you had a quote from Nancy Kress. Uh, I back. did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you didn't write – Nancy writes those books. And that's yeah. what Nancy writes. Yeah. How, to, you know, how to not be stupid in your story. You know? Right, right, exactly, yeah. 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 And, yeah. I mean, I may write a book like that at some point if I can find a unique angle, but mostly yeah. it's, it's, been, it, done. it's yeah. been done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What about yourself? Did you study writing or just start as a dilettante? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, first, so did be, you get a degree? I'll be, I'll be a suck up and say that I have a copy. I'll of, be the of hamster. It's, it's been very <laughs> helpful to me um, because a lot of the issues that you bring up in terms of getting mm. fragmented, uh, something is very easy to do, um, and so this has been very helpful. Thank oh, okay. you. Um, I did not really write, and I was an engineer in mm. in college until I realized I hated physics and I was falling asleep in my thermodynamics class and I got a C minus only because they dropped the curve down to sixty percent, so I got sixty point seven percent, and I decided I should probably switch my majors. <laughs> so I ended up in business, and then I got involved in an extracurricular activity at the University of the Pacific, where I went to college, and it was called Band Frolic, and it was a fifteen minute competition between all the living groups Mm. where you had to act and dance and sing for 15 minutes and you had that time frame to do it and and I was responsible for this. So I I wrote it, I directed, I choreographed, I staged. I had to teach a bunch of 19 to 22 year old fraternity guys how to dance (laughs) and how to have rhythm and how to do leg kicks together. And so it was, uh, it was, it was after doing that for two years, a year before I was going to graduate and I realized, well, this is what I want to do. It's too late to switch to a degree in, in, in liberal arts with focusing on English. So I just, and that's when I went down to LA. Now I noticed a pattern in your fiction. Are fraternity guys a good thing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I've, I've Terry had Bisson of is such a subversive. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say that. 
I've had a lot of people ask me if I if I was scarred uh, by a fraternity experience, and uh, no, actually I wasn't. I had a great fraternity experience, but they, were you dismembered? Right. Uh, I just I just knew fraternities well enough that they would make a great foil for for zombies and. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and it was just easy for me to get inside their heads. So you know, I was able to channel the worst aspect that everybody knows of fraternities uh, into the fraternity that exists in breathers. Anybody else? Cliff, you're with me, right? So, uh, Terry, are leading questions a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost zen-like, really. <laughs> they are a bad thing. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Well, you know, I was, it, uh, like when you're talking about ambergris and all the, the I mean, um, well, urban fantasy, as they call it, works some of that territory. It seems um, like. Urban fantasy has uh, been hijacked as a term, I think, um, and doesn't really mean what it did, you know, a few years back. So, What should it mean? I don't know what it should mean. Um, it seems to mean supernatural pararoma, paranormal oh, no. romance at this what point. I meant, what I meant was... Uh, I'm nothing thinking wrong about, with that. No, nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm thinking of, uh, like, the stuff about Ambergris, I'm thinking about... How many people saw that movie? What was it, District 19? The District 9, yeah. District 9, yeah. you know. Yeah. I thought it was interesting to me. That movie was number one in the U.S. for a little mm-hmm. while. And, and that had all those elements of a world you... You were not expected to fully understand it. You know, you were just yeah. as expected to kind of go in and it's kind of a, a Phil Dickian uh, concept, you know. Right. Well, I mean, there's there's definitely kind of a a, a Dickian and um, Ballardian um, influence on Finch. Um, but unlike someone like M. John Harrison, who believes that his his Vericonium is completely metaphysical, I don't. I don't really believe that Ambergris doesn't abide by rules. I mean, th- this 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 particular novel is set a hundred years after the other novels, and so it's very different. But um, but there's a certain continuity to it. I, I don't have maps um, uh, or anything like that, like you do on some fantasy novels. So it's maybe not quite as uh, as set as that. But um, and there's no is there magic? No, there's no magic. That's the thing. I write fantasy novels that don't have any fantasy element in them. <laughs> They're just set in an imaginary place. I mean, even the gray caps have an actual explanation behind them that's um, scientific. So that well, it works, but you're right. It's uh, it kind of jumps the fence a little bit. Or, yeah. yeah. Or Should I just say that there's wizards and stuff in it, or would that be more useful? There's know. wizards and stuff in it. I don't know. <laughs> They're a great thing in somebody else's novel. No. Yeah. Yeah. They can. I have this weird thing, which if I can't believe in the thing. I can't write about it. I don't believe in wizards, and I don't believe in vampires, so I can't write about them. I know that's very strange, and I actually got into a huge uh, argument with uh, Justina Robson about this. Um, but for some reason, I just can't. I can't do that. I can believe in these uh, these intelligent fungi, but uh, <laughs> so maybe the holes in my head are just a little different. I guess that means I believe in zombies. <laughs> See, it's totally different. Every writer has these quirks where it doesn't make any sense at all. Cheryl. Yeah, uh, Scott, uh, your your book is clearly extremely funny, but the, the, it was obvious from the. Uh, Thank you. But what? I'll pay you later. Sections <laughs> <laughs> that you read that there was serious stuff. Yeah. As well, that you That's were true. talking about how particular disadvantaged groups in, in society were affected. Mm. I mean, the, the the stuff, for example, about having to go back and live with your parents and how much it cost them. That could equally apply to somebody who's been disabled in an accident rather than killed. Mm. 
Uh, and then there's all the stuff about the zombie being chased. Well, that that's obviously ripping off you know, racism, homophobia, and that sort of stuff. Was, was there anything specific you had in mind about this? You know, like, like were you like writing it on behalf of the hamster liberation, <laughs> <laughs> or, or was it just generally that you were observing how society treats minority groups? Well, it, it it's definitely a theme that's in the book. When I sat down to write it, I actually that wasn't the main focus of what I was doing, but it it the the social issues and the social commentary evolved naturally out of the the narrative mm -hmm. when I was writing it. I, I'm not one of those I don't plot my books out. I make them up as I go. I discovered the stories I'm writing them and so I didn't have this plan to to weave this in. And so it just became part of the natural the natural narrative. Mm -hmm. It, it's it's for basically any any group that has been discriminated against. It's not anything particular. There, I I try not to make it a a pound you over the head with it type of thing, but there is a section where he equates it to the the different challenges that have been faced by by uh, by the slaves, um, by by women before they had the right to vote, by the Japanese that were held prisoner during World War II by the gay rights and the problems they faced, then going up to the, uh, you know, the, all the, the Muslims and all the, the sort of racial mm -hmm. stereotyping that goes on now. So, but it's just, it's a brief little bit that has to deal with it. So, yeah. not yeah. anyone particular, though I've had people tell me that they think this is a, an allegory for, for uh, the Holocaust. Yeah. And, and they say that obviously the breathers are the, are the, the Nazis and the zombies are the Jews and, uh, the fraternity members are the the, the death squads, so uh, I said, okay, if, if that's if that's what you read in it, that's fine. But I definitely wasn't thinking that when I wrote it. Well, the thing that I also appreciated about the reading, Scott, was the physicality of it, which is to say that when you do the satire and the allegory, it's really difficult to also modulate in a physicality, a specificity of detail, and make the surface of the story real in addition to what you're doing as a subtext. So you mean like the fudge sickle. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're like the very end of it where you have all the, the detail that was actually a little nauseating to me because I just eaten some Chinese, but um, <laughs> but <laughs> was really effective in in, 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 in in making you believe in the scene. So that was very nice. Oh, where's Mitchell? He has the answer to this question. Where'd he go? Yeah, but don't make it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, there was a theory floated around that I was reading about. I think it was in a New York Review of Books that the popularity of zombies had that the, what the zombie really represented was the middle American white guy. And, and he was so threatened by everything that was happening in the world that he can hardly walk, you know. Now, I wouldn't know anything about this. And there's not anything wrong with that. But anyway, it was a theory. I am, I am not touching that one. <laughs> I guarantee you I did not write this because I felt like I was uh, some sort of oppressed, <laughs> you know, middle-class white American. Yes. Jeff, I'm also interested in, hmm. in that issue uh, with the whole cycle of the Amadeus books. Uh -huh. done, um, you were talking earlier about how in... Sierra, speak up so we can hear the... Yeah. Please. Project. Project. <laughs> So you were talking earlier about how in, um, in your most recent mm -hmm. album, Finch, how you're talking about the relationship between the occupier and the occupied. Mm -hmm. and, and that seemed to me to be a, an ongoing concern with the city of Saints and Madman mm -hmm. and also Shriek. Yeah. Um, but reversed. Yeah. Um, and so 
I'm curious, I've just started Finch, I mm -hmm. haven't gone very far into it, so mm -hmm. maybe I'm asking a stupid question. I don't think so. But um, is this sort of like a, like you're coming to the end of the cycle of looking at what happens when the occupiers become the occupied and... Um, it, de it definitely is a concern, the whole idea of uh, colonialism. I mean, growing up in Fiji, you, you kind of see that too because of the, the influence of the British Commonwealth. Although it is true that the Fijians ate the first missionaries that came there and then asked for seconds um, and basically said, we never received the first batch. Um, it's actually true. Um, but, uh, but seeing, seeing, you know, seeing kind of first, firsthand on a low level, I mean, not nearly the kind of thing you see in, in like, in some countries, uh, definitely was an influence on these books. Um, but the thing that also comes through in Finch is that it's not just the Grey Caps and the, and the, the, the people who founded Ambergris, there are also these native tribes that have been marginalized. And uh, that's the next part. And actually, the, the thing that I keep saying that the Ambergris cycle is over, but the sun, suddenly something clicked on in my head about like 30 or 40 years after Finch and the political dynamic with these native tribes actually kind of reclaiming part of Ambergris. And so that's another exploration of the other that hasn't been in there. I mean, the gray caps have stood for the other, the thing that you, you fear, even though it's just because of your own ignorance in some ways. Um, and then there's that reversal, like you said, in Finch. Um, but there's another aspect, like I said, which is this political di dynamic of these original inhabitants who were displaced by the, the whaling clans that came in and, 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 f and founded Ambergris along with the, the gray caps. So. Cool. Anybody else have anything to say that's intelligent or that adds anything? <laughs> or, or that is silly. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Yeah. This is, it's been a great evening. We've had two really interesting writers. It's been a great year. I want to yeah. thank I, uh, somebody. Uh, Jeff was gracious enough, but we couldn't do this without Rick Kleffel. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do it without Rena. We couldn't do it without Jacob. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do it without Katrina, who helps run the bar, and we, c we couldn't do it without mm -hmm. Jude, who brings the books. And yeah. uh, thank you all, and thank them. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> Cheryl, right. I forgot yeah. Cheryl. Yeah. And who? <laughs> okay. Uh, and, 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 and please sign my copy of Book Life before you leave if you get a chance. So. All right. Because I'm Thanks, obsessed guys. about that. Thank I'll you. See you. We'll see you in, in January of 2000. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you like. <laughs> I would rather have someone who self-identifies as a stalker than a stalker I don't know about. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.